Remember, if you've liked what you've heard today, uh, please click lick, let's, <laughs> click, lick, click, lick, like and subscribe. <laughs> please lick, like and subscribe. now more mature and more sensible that's a lie some of us are <laughs> yeah we'll see as the episode progresses but it's a big one mm, yeah we're going to talk about how i'm slightly mad and why what we're going to talk about now like is probably that the reason we've done this and it could get a bit heavy but you know oh it, it well it probably well there's no doubt about it i mean it's an intense topic it's something that yeah, I mean, I might well get quite upset about, but... I've got the tissues ready, just in case. <laughs> I don't, I, and I know some of them are stuck together, but we won't talk about that. Hey, I'll just blow my nose in my t-shirt. Let's take it back. We're going back almost, well, just over two years now. 27th of February, 2019. You're at work as a police officer, mm-hmm. and you're crewed with an ex-colleague of mine and yours. You were crewed together on that day because it was his last shift with the team. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'd worked together for 10 years uh, and we were really close. And he'd got a job on a different department because it sort of suited his family life. So he was leaving the team. So we got specifically crewed together for, you know, one last hurrah, so to speak. Was that set up or was that kind of like, Sarge, can we, this is last shift, can we go together kind of thing? Oh, we both asked, yeah. yeah. We like yeah. both separately said, you know, can I, <laughs> can I be with my friend? Because we're that mature. But yeah, we were, we were allowed. And at the beginning of the shift, I was driving and it all make sense as to why that's not great later so i was driving originally and we were in a, a normal police car so you know a normal kind of run around police car that you see yeah so like a voxel astra yeah. or a hyundai or a ford yeah. not one of those fancy ones you see on police interceptors sadly not no no, no we had one of the uh, crappy ones our uh, friend dave's going to be listening to this can put his hand up and like, i've got one of them <laughs> oh i'm in one of them oh, traffic. yeah like bmw man <laughs> um i was not in a cool bmw i was in a piddly little astra however in a normal police car pottering around and we had to change vehicles halfway through the beginning of the shift. So I got rid of that one and then a new vehicle turned up. So, I mean, they loved us because we killed it, but a very, very expensive new sort of four by four vehicle turned up. Can I just interject? Like, this is another backstory, but was that my vehicle? It was the one that you were going to get. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure you ever got it because we killed it, but no, yeah. No. Yeah, I never I drove I never even drove it. Yeah. So that that was going to be allocated to Paul's department, but to Paul direct. I think it was my my toy. Yeah, well, I killed your toy. Well, sort of. Anyway, very expensive shiny new toy turns up and because we're children, we went, "Ooh, shiny." So we took that one out. And actually the fact that we took that vehicle one of the reasons we're still alive because it's a lot bigger. Yeah. It's got like six and a half feet of bonnet in front of it, and it's a lot taller. Um, so was it? Because I never even saw it. Was it? <laughs> well, like, I've heard, I've heard myths about this magical vehicle. Was it just a replacement? Like, was it like the L two hundred replacement, or was it a Ford? Was one of the new Ford, the, the brand new Ford Ranger thing. Ah, uh, it was a Ranger. Okay, yeah, which is which is bigger again than the L two hundred, which is again a good thing. The fully marked up police. Oh, it looked beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It, it was in peak nick we'd taken that one out because it was shiny and new and we were popping along on the a4 which is a a sort of major trunk road in our area the weather was awful 
So, I'm, you know, pitch black, really close fog. You know, you couldn't see a thing. Uh, and we got to a specific point on the road where the weather really did change. So, you know, you literally couldn't see anything. So we've slowed right down. And, you know, it was recorded on some tracking thing that we actually had a conversation about it. Yeah. Uh, albeit short and sweet, but it was something like, you know, fucking hell, that's really foggy. Yeah, shit, I can't see. Yeah, that basically kind of that, that sort of conversation. Yeah. You know, so we've we've had that conversation. We, we've slowed down. Again, pottering along, talking as you do, out of nowhere, massive explosion sound. Someone in a, a 32-ton HGV had decided on a 60-mile-an-hour road in those conditions to try and do a three-point turn. Now, the vehicle was longer than the width of the road, for starters, so it was never going to work. Yeah. The lights down the side of the truck, which HTVs apparently are meant to have, mm. weren't working on the side that was presented to us. So he's put this lorry, like a 32-ton wall, across the road with no lights on, effectively. So we couldn't see it. We didn't see a thing until literally we headbutted it, pretty much. Yeah. We've got, going back to like the moment of the impact, massive smash, all the lights go out. Everywhere outside is pitch black anyway. Everything, all of the electrics died in our vehicle. So you like, literally couldn't see a thing. I headbutted, so airbag goes off in my face for starters. That pushes you back. Yeah. Then I headbutted something, which hurt a lot. My leg, both my legs were trapped as well. So the, the dash dashboard literally crumpled down onto both my legs. Yeah. Pinned both my legs. And I've got a little scar on my arm here because I'm not sure which part of the car it was, but my left arm got trapped basically. So the door, the door frame kind of crumpled down as well uh, and trapped my left arm. So I couldn't move my left arm. And then obviously, as all the dust, I mean, I had glass in my eyes as well. So you get all the dust, all the stuff from the airbag sort of settles down because that's got kind of dust in it and smoke because obviously it goes off because there's an explosive in it. Yeah, yeah, from the. You know, so my legs are pinned absolutely killing me i've headbutted something i've got glass in my eyes and then obviously i go oh my god matt like where is he what's happening how's he doing yeah uh, i can't see anything and I, I don't know why at the time but i can't move my left arm so i fiddle around and i get a, i've got a torch uh, on my kit vest you know the sort of thing we wear pulled that out and i put it in my mouth because mm-hmm. i couldn't do anything else so i put a torch in my mouth and i've turned to my right uh, and then seen matt and so basically then I sort of worked out the situation we were in because I could see what had happened I've then screamed on the radio you know crash 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 and said where we were and then initially I stopped talking because I just I looked at we were in a tiny tiny space like there were people in some of the reports and things that have said they can't see how our body was in it if you know what I mean yeah so I've got all this pressure physically on me looking at Matt he had critical i mean critical critical head injuries and immediately i could tell he wasn't breathing and you know i thought he was dead yeah i also thought uh that i was going to be dead shortly i had a massive rush of warm liquid down my leg which because i couldn't see my legs and my legs were i mean they were crushed under the dashboard and the whole the whole of the six and a half foot of big bonnet was under the lorry and the side of the lorry the metal side of it was in the vehicle with us yeah so i was about two inches away from having headbutted the lorry myself so i didn't have a lot of like sort of operating space i thought i had a critical bleed i thought i was like had a, a catastrophic hemorrhage because i yeah, had this yeah. massive rush of hot liquid down my leg turns out it was coffee <laughs> i mean i'm glad like I, I didn't want to interrupt and say yeah. did 
like uh, oh did I piss myself yeah I mean I thought I might have done but well, I, 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 I just legit I didn't but like, I, I don't want to devalue the story like there's times to joke and there's times not to but like yeah, yeah. it's a genuine thing that happens so oh god not, yeah yeah not, and it's really you know, common it's um, with with like massive trauma you, you know you get a loss and potential loss of consciousness you get a loss of control so yeah, yeah I mean pissing yourself is, and is you actually quite common but. and you don't know at that point you know you, you're saying that your your legs are trapped mm. Well, you don't know, you know, what's impinged, what's, you know, what's happened. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. You know. I mean, it, it transpires. It was coffee. Yeah. Um, but at the time, you know, all I've got is I can't see half my body. It hurts like hell. I've got a massive rush of hot liquid. And I genuinely thought, oh, well, I'm going to die now. So we have um, these body cameras that oh, I turned it on. So I thought, well, if I'm going to die, like, people need to know what happened. And that I sort of tried my best to do something to tell Matt. Mm-hmm. So I've turned my body camera on just to record sort of, it sounds mental, but I genuinely thought it was like going to be our dying moments. Because I mean, like I say, he was already not breathing. Hmm. Basically, so this, at this point, you think he's he's a goner. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, one hundred percent. But I know I needed to do something yeah. to at least try. But you've got that. It's a colleague. It's a close oh, yeah. friend. And yeah, you're going to try. But your your brain is saying there's nothing I can do. This guy's gone. Yes and no. I mean, you know my history. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a medic, and you know, you've I've never got, mentioned it. No, I've never mentioned it. But um, I've got a reasonable track record as well of, of, of saving people. But when I'm on duty, I carry uh, an advanced med kit because the normal ones are rubbish. So I carry my own gear. And annoyingly, because of the position that I was in, I could see it, but I couldn't reach it. So I couldn't reach any of my advanced kit. So I literally, I had one hand and a torch, and that was all I had. Uh, and because of the way the crash worked, Matt's steering wheel had like folded over the airbag for him deployed down between his legs. So it didn't do anything. So he's gone straight over the top into the window and through the window. Yeah. So his head and face was connected to the side of the lorry. I mean, he'd literally headbutted the lorry. Massive critical head injury. He's crumpled up. The vehicle is all around him. And the level of intrusion, i.e. how much of the lorry's in with us, is huge. You know, the only thing I could actually see was whatever was in the beam of the torch and I had that in my mouth. So it was it wasn't ideal. And I was pinned in place, but I knew I had to get him breathing again. In obviously, you know, in a crash, you know, spinal injuries, risk of spinal injuries is a massive thing. Uh, and you obviously try as best as you can to preserve the spine. However, if you're not breathing then none of that matters because you're just gonna die. So I had to make the decision to move him anyway, but to actually move him because he was I mean, literally buried in the side of the truck. I had to force my hand through the windscreen. So where he'd gone through, windscreens are on modern cars. They shatter, but they don't, like, shatter, shatter, if you know they, what I mean. Yeah, they, they kind of they kind of smash but stay together. So yeah. it's all cracked. Mm. And then you'll get shards and stuff. You um, had him in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the actual, the, the, the whole point is that it's to stop what you were saying earlier with, with like catastrophic bleeds and stuff. You know, it's one, you know, I'm in a car and it's it's crashed, but actually I've got this glass around me. It's like I had a cousin that ran for a patio door once. You've essentially got razor blades. Oh, yeah, everywhere. razor blades flying around. Yeah. yeah, so the idea is that it, it prevents that, mm-hmm. but, but clearly then, you know, and it should stay together in one piece, I guess. Um, it, 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 it did. So basically it went into almost wavy kind of shape. So Matt's head was obviously through it. So there was a small hole where part of his face was all the way through the glass and part of his his eye and his mouth and his nose and that side of his face was through and in contact with the truck. So I had to, from my position, effectively like punch my way through what was left and make a hole next to it to to literally peel his head off the side of the truck to bring him back inside 
the vehicle so I could do anything because the position he was in, I couldn't maintain, clear, or do anything with his airway. Trying to clear an airway, or, I mean, you know, you sort of pop that head back, you do like a chin lift and all that, and you try and get all the gunk out of his mouth. Trying to do that with one hand is nigh on impossible because the position that he was in is all crunched, crunched up. So I'm trying to like tilt his head back and it looked like all his teeth had shattered, literally like all his teeth had smashed to bits. Turns out it wasn't that. It was a golf ball sized chunk of glass. As his face had gone through the windscreen, he'd literally eaten a load of glass. Right. So I've literally had to pull loads of glass out of his mouth and out of his throat to try and get him breathing again. And then hold him in a position with one hand that could sort of maintain his airway. And then I've had to look at, you know, like how, you know, how do you do, how do you maintain an airway and do CPR with one hand? Like from a seated position on the other side of a car, a big car as well, you know? Yeah, they don't teach that in the... No, no, they don't. They've never taught me that. I normally have a... Um, a There's an app for that. Yeah. <laughs> I wish there was. I normally have the uh, the torso of a crash test dummy. Mm, yeah, Rosassiani does yeah. not... No. Yeah, does not cover that scenario. Again, you know, another thing actually that was really, really difficult to operate with but helped save him is his stab vest. So his stab vest, you know, although he did smash a load of ribs and it pierced one of his lungs. So long story short, I did my very best stroke worst uh, version of CPR from the passenger seat with one hand, basically mm. hit, just hitting him, basically. Yeah. Hitting him in the right area, but sort of hitting him and trying to clear his airway and fit with his head. Uh, I managed to get him breathing again, which is amazing. And this is prior to anyone showing up? Yeah, no one's turned up yet. And t- your perception is really is true. Like the whole perception of time thing, you know, ooh, time goes all slow-mo. Yeah, 100%. That felt like I was there for an hour. Mm. And bear in mind, I, you know had my radio to go crash, crash, crash on. The world and his mum was coming. Yeah. They just hadn't got there yet. So although this felt like it took me forever, it probably was pretty Do you pretty know instant. how long it was between you, like how long it took the next unit to get there? No, I don't actually. Okay. I don't. I, don't. I mean, it's probably got brought up at some point, but I don't. Not very long. Because, I mean, I, I know some of my colleagues that turned up, you know, the, the little Astras, shall we say, had their engines blown out trying to get there. Because you do. You yeah. know, when, you're, when, when your colleagues are hurt or in danger, you, you get, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter what's going on, you get there. So pretty quick. Um, and I know, for instance, there was a colleague of ours called Jess who uh, is on another team. She was on. The fire service were obviously called by our control room, but Jess literally drove through the fire station back gate. And I don't mean through it, I mean through it. Hmm. And said, fucking follow me now. So the fire service were on their way because Jess basically smashed away into the fire station before they even received the call. Because she just went from the Nick. Yeah. Because you know where it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like skidded into their car park and was like, right, follow me now. And they just did. Yeah. I got a lot of time for Jess because uh, a job that I had where I was on my own in the middle of nowhere Mm. in a village, 40 minutes from any help. And, and it was quite a big job, a fire catching people's houses and stuff. And it was really touch and go for a while. And, and she actually, off duty, came and gave me a hand. And uh, yeah, no, a lot of time for that girl. Yeah, I mean, she, funnily enough, she's one of the first faces I remember actually seeing. And yeah, I have a lot of time for her. Because when, when you're in the shit and you realise the cavalry is coming, so to speak, it's, it's an amazing thing. Because obviously, as I'm doing all this in my ear, because obviously I have the little earpiece thing, I can hear people talking about, you know, literally everyone going, I'm making, I'm coming, I'm, you know, I'm coming. And that in itself just makes me feel emotional, you know, because like, you need help. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt about it. You need help. I think even from that, you know, from the other side of that as well, 
more often than not in that time period and and like I say I've left now I don't know what it is right this moment but during that time period the fact that you guys were double crewed was mm, was unusual mm. I've been on what we call zero zero shouts I've been on those shouts where you just drop everything it doesn't matter what it is you drop everything you, and you go like you yeah. said you just go escalating that to the the fact of it's one of your best mates mm. and it sounds you know because these zero zero shouts they happen mm. and more often than not they're an accidental press or it's it's just you know it, by the time you get there it's calmed down or, yeah. or you know but this is a genuine mm. genuine shout and I think not just you being emotional sat there hearing people coming but even from the other side of them driving to you on blues in the fog not knowing yeah. when they get there it's not like when you go like you said about adrenaline when you go to a job you're going, you don't know the people, you go, you turn up, autopilot kicks in and you deal with it. Mm. They're coming and through their heads is, what how am I going to, I've not heard, you know, even little things like, I've not heard Matt on the radio, I've not heard, mm. you know, what am I going to see? I, I said on the radio at, at one point, because we reached a point where obviously I've realised, wait a second, I'm not dying. You know, I'm hurt, but I'm not dying. So like, just sort of crack on with Matt. Was uh, that quite quick? You said when you felt the warm liquid, mm. you know. Quite quickly after that, you realize. I mean, did you realize it was coffee? Like, or was it only until afterwards? You, I sort of self-assessed pretty quickly. Yeah, because if you did, if you had a cat hem on your femoral artery, which is what it would have been, because I couldn't see my legs. I mean, you can pass out in eleven seconds. Yeah, I mean, it's... so so basically, like eleven seconds later, when I was, <laughs> when I was still here, I was like, oh, did you set a timer on your Casio? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, right, yeah. okay. oh no, we're good. Okay, like, right. Yeah, like, oh, I'm not It's amazing. It, it's funny because. I know that it took a matter of seconds. And again, from various car recording things and body warns, et cetera, I know it literally took seconds. I still feel guilty, guilty as hell, that I took any time at all to self-assess myself, which is mad because if I hadn't or, I, you know, if I wasn't fit to help him, then we'd both be dead. But I still feel guilty as hell that I took half a second to even bother. I'm steadily realizing that I'm in more and more pain and, like, everything's hurting but some of the first people to turn up were obviously colleagues like police officers and then fire service and then ambulance and then the hems the helicopter turned up literally at one point there was easily 30 or 40 people there i mean i was still stuck it took over an hour to cut us out you know you had a team of six firefighters my side a team of six firefighters matt's side and they were using all the tools that you see on tv you know jaws of life etc I've seen them used before, but being in the vehicle that they're cutting apart is a whole different thing. And it's incredibly loud and it's actually quite intimidating having a massive hydraulic claw like an inch from your face ripping ripping things off. As I'm as they're doing that and they're ripping the car apart and everything, paramedic comes in, doses me up. I get some morphine, which is lovely because I needed it, and then they gave me some ketamine. Now, I've never had ketamine before. <laughs> so I wasn't I mean uh, I've seen it administered and, you know, it tends to be for major traumatic injuries because it is like a turbo painkiller. Morphine works, ketamine's a whole different thing. I got given some ketamine as they were cutting me out because obviously as they're moving stuff around, it really hurts, frankly. They, you know, they're lifting stuff up. They put like these hydraulic jack things between my legs to lift stuff up. And so I was getting hefted around and in a lot of pain. So they gave me this ketamine, which was lovely. Uh, and I was properly off my tits as... They're doing that with me. The team on the other side were talking about doing what's called a rapid extraction on Matt. So a rapid extraction is 
injuries be damned, he's half dead. We just drag him out. Yeah. You know, you, you've seen at RTCs, extricating someone takes ages and it's done on the spinal board. It's done inch by inch by inch to preserve that person. When someone is so badly injured, they're literally near death. They don't, they're like, fuck it, get him out. And they were talking about that now because I know what that means. I started obviously to get a little bit head up and I heard one of the other firefighters say, the only way out is across me. So basically, they were telling me I was in the way. Uh, and I started kicking off. Because again, I was like, you know, just get him out. He's more important. And I was genuinely meant to. I was like, well, chop my legs off and just drag me out. Like, <laughs> literally, like, images of like, well, just bin me to the side. Like, cut my legs off and lob me out. And then you've got the space to do, to do what you need to do. But I'm obviously saying that. And then you've got all these paramedics and firefighters going, you know, that that's not going to happen. We're not, <laughs> not going to chop your legs off. But because... I was on ketamine and I still thought, well, I've got to be helpful. I had my, you know, like medic shears, like tough cut scissors, yeah, yeah. cutting clothes off. I carry them on my vest all the time anyway. And they were talking about, right, we need access, we need IV access to him. And because he was so crunched up and half his body was not visible, funnily enough, the only bit that they could really get a line in was, was his left arm, but that was nearest to me. Mm. I'm like, off my tits on ketamine. So I started cutting Matt's clothes off. And I said, I'll, I'll do it. It's not the first time. No, no, no. But I was like, I'll do it. I'll be helpful. So I start cutting his sleeve off. Uh, and I, I managed to get his left arm out. And, and the paramedics were like, mm, yeah, do you want to just stop? It's like, stop now. And I was like, nope, you're all wrong. Shut up. I, you know, and I tried to, I was cutting my own clothes off. I cut my seatbelt off. And you've got all these people, like all these amazing professional people doing what they do day in and day out. And you've got me in the middle of it on ketamine, like just cutting everything I could see. So I started cutting my own clothes off. I cut my seatbelt off. I was just randomly cutting bits of Matt's clothes. They're like, they're like, like we've got this, this, guy this, doing? this one really critical patient who we need to potentially yeah. rapidly extract mm. and then we have an 11 year old with Asperger's and a set of scissors <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much probably what they were thinking but like banding around the old medical term they were like how does he know this stuff and why is he doing that like yeah so it was a bit weird but they managed to jack up the, the dashboard to relieve the pressure on my legs uh, and there was a firefighter sort of knelt down next to the door ripping off another part of the car and there was like a team with a spinal board and all the blocks and everything ready to get me out. Now, the moment the pressure released and I thought, well, I can move now, I did absolutely what you're not meant to do. But I was like, Matt needs space. So I just got out. I got about two steps and then pretty much collapsed and I got spinal boarded there. Yeah, I was on a spinal board, blocks either side of my head, taped down properly, like secured. And I'm assuming it's because of the ketamine and kind of the way I was feeling at the time. Again, I didn't want to leave. Like, I didn't want to leave until I knew Matt was okay. So I'm probably being a bit annoying at this point, and I'm going, I'm not going anywhere. Like, you're not taking me away. You've got people going, oh, mate, you're quite bashed up yourself. You need to go to hospital. And I had this wonderful idea, which through my sort of drug-induced haze made so much sense to me, and it frustrated me that they didn't get it. I said to the firefighters, bear in mind they're all carrying me, and I'm on this spinal board. I said, right gaffer tape me to the side of the truck <laughs> and they were like what i went well gaffer tape me in the spinal board sellotape me to the side of your fire truck and i said i can then see you know i can see what's happening i can check matt's all right and you know everything's going on because by this point he had he had doctors and surgeons operating on him in the vehicle yeah uh, and i'm like i'm not fucking going anywhere you ain't taking me away <laughs> so i said to them right it makes absolute sense. Sellotape me to the side of the fire truck. And they're going, no, mate, no, you know, you need to go to hospital. And I got really angry because I'm assuming it's a ketamine, but it made, it made so much sense. And I started like, 
Listen here, knobhead. Get your gaffer tape out. Sellotape me to the side of the fire truck. Then when Matt's okay and Matt goes to hospital, you lads, you can take me to hospital. And they were like, what the fuck are you going on about? I genuinely had this image of being like sellotaped to the front of a fire truck, like a kind of like figurehead on a ship, like <laughs> watching everything on the scene. And then when they were done, the fire truck could just drive me sellotaped to the front of it to the emergency department clearly that's really stupid but it made so much sense and i was shouting at him like come on and you do you remember saying all this oh yeah and i've had it i've I've since had it backed up by one of the paramedics because funnily enough one of the paramedics that was on the scene is now actually a police officer so i've spoken to him about it and he brought it up and he was like oh do you remember that bit of weirdness about being sellotaped to the fire truck and i was like yeah sorry about that because as i'm kicking off about you know like because in my head, and, and this bit I do mean, like, never leave a man behind. Like, I'm I'm not going. I am not going until I know he's okay. I think as well, like, in the kind of, you've got this crazy traumatic time, and we've already said, you know, he's, he's not just a colleague, he's a friend. Mm. You've already mentioned and said, you know, you thought he was a goner. Oh, God, yeah. So in your head, now you've kind of got over the fact you've gone, okay, I'm pretty banged up but i'm not i'm not dying mm. um i'm gonna be okay and then you're looking at and you're like well you you take me away i might never see him again oh yeah 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 and we, weirdly and this is weird bear in mind they had literally some of the best the best people in the country working on him because i was kind of like responsible for him for the first couple of minutes i was like i just i felt so responsible for him i still do you know for his current condition and everything that happened now I know I was a passenger. Yeah. I had no control over any of it. Literally none of it. Now I know that. I think we should probably but. just make make a note of that for anyone listening and like I don't like it's not fair for us to go into like Kieran's made a couple of comments about Matt's current condition. It's not for us to go into that or you know sort of say where he's at now or anything. You know, clearly an incident like this changes people and he's he's not the same bloke that he was before, but it wouldn't be fair of us to go into specifics about what that is. Um, so no, he's made incredible progress, but there are huge, huge, long-lasting uh, effects on him. But yeah, you know, he he went from literally dead, pretty much, to, to now being here with us. And yes, he's a different bloke and has had a lot of changes to his life and his you know, physical well-being, but you know, at least he's still here. I mean, at this point, so you're in hospital mm-hmm. and your world has changed and I'm asleep and and it was such a strict like i woke up quite early for me i think i woke up about 6 a.m i might set an alarm my wife was in america and she works in the states quite a bit and i woke up and and my first thought is oh god i've got to get up and get the kids ready for school and and um and i like you know sort of scramble around for my phone i pick it up and normally i might have like like a message or a couple of emails or, or whatever and i picked it up and it was like 17 missed calls and straight away you kind of like oh who the fucks because it what it didn't say who it was just like missed calls and then i had to click it to see who and, and i think maybe about six or seven were you and they were like i want to say about like 3 a.m or something like that they were kind of by cra- that point probably yeah yeah crazy time and then i also had a load from dave and then i had so I had loads of loads of calls, but no messages apart from one. And the one message was from Dave, and it was like 6 a.m. or something. And it said, 
is your other half okay? And that was it. So instantly, my my brain is like, okay, so my wife's in America and in a big built-up city, and I've got all these calls. What's happened in America? Has there been a terrorist attack? Like, I start shitting myself that my wife's been blown up or something. And so I start trying to call her. Well, obviously, she's five hours behind and asleep, so Net doesn't answer, and I keep calling, I keep calling, keep calling. I message Dave, and I'm like, what, what the hell do you mean? And then he gets back, and he, he just message like straight out of it kieran and matt were in an an accident like it's pretty bad and bearing in mind i'm half asleep it like give me a little bit of slack on this one but my straight away my initial thought is i've said this before to you and i i listen and i'm like oh god should i say this it makes me sound awful but we had this like amazing holiday planned like Two months later, like six weeks later, like, and it'd been planned for a while. And, and straight away, I'm like, no, <laughs> Bali. <laughs> and then, and I just, I, that's all I could think was like, and I got angry with you. I was like, he's fucking typical Kieran. Trust him to get into an accident. He's ruined my holiday. <laughs> it was bloody inconsiderate on my part. I, it, I can it, only apologize. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad we've, we've cleared that one up. <laughs> So, if you like what you're listening to, and you don't want to miss any of our upcoming content, please give us a like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Dudes Don't Cry for all the latest on our upcoming episodes. And if you want to get in touch, or maybe even share your story, please go to our Anchor host website at anchor.fm forward slash dudes don't cry. From there, you'll be able to send us an email, or even click the link and send us a voice message. And if it's good enough, we might even play it on the show. And finally, if you're a fan of our intro music, then check out the band Just A Ride. Their latest single, Razor, is out now and you can listen on Spotify. And there's a link to their social account in the description of this episode. I think I phoned you and I phoned you a couple of times and you didn't answer and then you did answer. And I could tell there was you, it wasn't you, like it wasn't normal you. I could tell you were on some kind of drugs and potentially still strapped to a board somewhere. And, and I remember you saying to me, like, my other half, like... I've purposely you were you're obviously with it enough to be like telling your colleagues don't go straight to my other half go to her parents first because I remember you saying her dad's going to get her or something like I deliberately waited as well I mean it, it was horrible and in some respects the only person obviously you know you want your partner there and yeah. like and, and I did but when we got to the hospital uh, I went to a place called John Radcliffe Hospital I'm in a in a trauma bay, one of, I think, we're in a run of four. I'm on a spinal board. I'm, I mean, I look awful because I'm head to toe covered in blood, partly Matt's, partly mine. The guy next to me, don't know anything about him, but he died. So I'm laying there on a spinal board, random member of the public. I know he'd been stabbed. So I listened to him die. So there was me, guy who got murdered, then Matt. Again, because I sort of, you know, know what I'm on about medically. When they brought him in and they're doing the handover, when the paramedics are handing over, in fact, it was a Hems doctor handing over, it was a huge list of things that were wrong with him. Not the normal kind of stuff where you're just like, oh, you know, his sats are this, his blood pressure's this, his pulse rate's this, you know, his blood sugars are this. It was a long list of so many things that were critically wrong with him, which, if you summarize it, is, yeah, he's going to die in a minute. And I'm attached to a spinal board, covered in blood, looking like shit, with a guy next to me who's just died, and Matt is in the process of dying. And I was just like, I don't want to expose her to this. Yeah. 
like, I mean, don't get me wrong, it, being taped down to a bed by yourself, listening to all that, is probably one of the worst things I've ever experienced. But I just, I didn't, I didn't want to drag her into it. Like, why mm. needlessly expose her? Uh, to that trauma really so yeah I, I it's something we've discussed since and she was actually really upset she's yeah. really upset that i didn't initially tell her but it was done with the absolute best of intentions because in my view like it was horrific anyway so like why bring someone else into that so yeah i, I called you instead and i thought you know i'm traumatized as shit are you <laughs> <laughs> eventually i was discharged from any i had to go back to hospital a whole load of times afterwards but I was kicked out of the A&E bit and I was discharged with so many, so many different medications. I, I was high for weeks, which in some respects was great. But yeah, a good three weeks, I was basically completely off my tits. And I remember I went to, there's a post-instant debrief, which happens, you know, anytime there's a major event in the police, you have a big sit down and a chat about it afterwards. Now, no one expected me to go to it and I probably shouldn't have done either. And I have no recollection of how I got there. I'm assuming someone dropped me off apparently i sat in this meeting like i mean my face and my head was all swollen up and i looked like you know sloth from the goonies uh, and apparently i just sat there and cried i didn't really contribute so that probably didn't help anyone but they were thrilled you were there <laughs> yeah yeah let's talk about this horrific event and look at sloth over there crying and so that wasn't helpful but i did meet like a welfare bloke now i've been in the police now this is my 13th year i've never had or needed, should we say, you know, I've never needed trauma therapy or anything like that. This, I didn't, I didn't deal with it at all. I did not deal with it well at all. And I just remember, I don't remember anything else about that debrief at all, but I just remember meeting this guy, and I think his name was Steve, uh, and he spoke to me about welfare options, you know, do I want counselling or something? And I was off, too off my tits to sort of go into details, but I just remember going, yeah, yeah, I really do. Like, whatever you want to give me, throw me everything because I, I fucking need it. And I think that moment of just going, yes, please, it's probably the most important thing I've I've done, like, ever. Because I've never needed it before. I've never considered it. I've recommended it to other people. Mm. Uh, ironically, having never even had it, I've just said, oh, you know, you've been through something traumatic. Go have this. It'll help. But yeah, no, I, I literally grasped everything they threw at me, which was quite a lot, to be fair. I had a lot, and I went and saw a psychiatrist initially, which is really exposing, I think is probably the word, because you sit there and you just talk about everything in like really fine-grained detail, and you sit and you cry and you blubber and you try and explain how you're you you know you're feeling. And initially, because they're doing like an assessment on you, they just listen. They don't even say anything. So like you're just kind of sat there like pouring your heart and soul out and your concerns out to a stranger. And they're just kind of looking at you, which feels really, really odd. Mm. But the person that I, I did that to then does a does an assessment and then recommended me for different types of therapy. The first one being EMDR, which is what we spoke about uh, in episode one. And I'd never heard of it. And in the past, I've been what's called trim trained. So trauma risk incident manager. So it's how you identify signs of trauma in colleagues. And then you put them through this sort of set process to help minimize uh, trauma immediately after an, after an incident. So I'm au fait with trauma, but I'd never heard of EMDR because it's bluntly a bit weird. They said, have some EMDR, and I was like, cool, I'll try anything. And, you know, all, all this time, Matt is still in hospital, he's still in a coma, so, you know, he's almost a write-off. And, you know, I'm still being told he's going to die. On one side, I've got people hugging me every five minutes, saying, like, oh, my God, you saved him, aren't you a hero? And on the other side, 
I'm beating you, you say I beat myself up I was like beating myself up to the point of like almost self-harming because like I've saved you for what like what's the point like you know you're gonna be have you had that conversation with him since yeah, yeah. and uh, how did that it's the weirdest thing I've ever said because, like, my my darkest moment, which is pre-starting the therapy stuff, but I was like, I went through a lot in therapy. But my darkest moment was actually thinking, should I have done it at all? Like, genuinely thinking, should I have let him die? Which is massively fucked up. But when you're being told he's never going to walk again, he's never going to talk again, he's not going to be able to engage with his children, or you know have a life effectively you know he's going to be wheelchair bound i mean the sort of targets and the level that he was at did keep changing and over the months and months and months and months and months slowly improve but at the beginning we were literally told he's going to be brain dead yeah and you're just prolonging his life for no reason and and i i went into a fairly dark place where i was like i'm i'm torturing him Mm. and i was like you know you've got all these people like hugging me and this happened a lot like work colleagues and stuff but now looking like now knowing where he's got to in his recovery Mm -hmm. surely you must you that must at least some point be put to side (sighs) or are you that fucking dark (laughs) you're still like he's like thanks for saving me man (laughs) i still shouldn't have bothered (laughs) no no clearly that changes but the feeling of responsibility and guilt doesn't. And that was one of the biggest things. When you go through the therapy bit, the thing that I struggle with for the longest and still do, but I just constantly feel like I didn't do enough, yeah, and which doesn't have to make sense. And that's the thing I learned in therapy. Like a lot of the stuff that you think and feel, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any logical sense either. And, it, you know, it's the same as, you know, I couldn't get in a car for months. And bear in mind, I drive fast for a living. I couldn't get in a car. And I remember my father-in-law driving back from a hospital appointment, he literally dabbed the brakes approaching a roundabout and I had a panic attack. I've never had a panic attack, yet I wanted to cry and jump out of the vehicle because he dabbed the brakes. Like, I was terrified, thinking I was going to die. And it just makes you feel pathetic. And I felt like a child. I felt pathetic. I felt I'd let Matt down. I didn't do enough. That What the fuck am I doing now? I'm like a 12-year-old crying his eyes out just because someone brakes in a car. We've had that recently like we'll get to my story at some point in mm. terms of my condition and whatnot and but that's the biggest thing having left the police and not being able to drive you know going from every day driving on blue lights fast everywhere and you know i'm you know big into my motorsports and i like oh you're an amazing you know, driver thank you <laughs> but, but to go from that to then not driving and mm. my condition being as such that there's that time where i hadn't driven for ages and i was starting you know just to the point where I was recovering and starting to drive again. Mm. And you were like, I've not really been in a car. I don't know how I feel. (laughs) And then I'm like, right, let's jump in mine and go and do a race launch control. (laughs) Yeah. And that was probably the first time that I had a glimmer of enjoying driving again. Because, you know, I, you know, I've since, you know, I've I've gone back, I've requalified, you know, I, I, do everything I used to do. Mm. You know, I am still capable of driving fast and doing what I need to do on a day-to-day basis, and I do. But I didn't, you know, I used to love it. But, uh, you know, the love of it and the enjoyment of it has gone. It's just something I have to do now. But it took months. Like, I was terrified to sit in my own car. I wouldn't go, when I did then start driving, and the only reason I did is because I live in a village. I was isolated. If I didn't start driving, I couldn't live or go anywhere. I mean, you're lucky that your village has a, a main train line. 
Yeah. So so you could kind of no. put it off and put it off for a while yeah. with that. But, but yeah. yeah. But, I mean, funnily enough, and I, I remember the massive irony of this, my first EMDR appointment was in Swindon. And the woman I saw, who I then saw for months, was incredible. But I had to drive there. Yeah. Um, and uh, my missus was at work, you know, because, you know, life goes on. And I had to drive there. Now, it's probably 25 minutes from my house. It took me an hour and a half because I was driving. Like, Did you stop at Mackie D's again? No, no, no. I was just driving like a granny and I was terrified and I kept pulling over. So, you know, I had to drive to somewhere like to talk Rick- about all this, like, trauma about cars. Were you like Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights after he has his accident? Yes. And he's, like, in the yeah. car being like, oh, my God, I'm going so fast. And it cuts out the outside and he's, like, doing, like, three miles an hour. Yeah, pretty much. Genuinely, pretty much. And, you know, and I would drive to this appointment and I had to sit for, like, 15 minutes before I even went in there to, like, calm down from the hectic 15-mile-an-hour drive that I'd had. And that got steadily better and better. So by the end of it, you know, I, I could drive there and back and not be too too horrifically scarred by the whole show. I mean, in a, in a weird way, it actually, it worked twofold because, yeah, you're talking about it, but you had no alternative. Mm. I mean, I know I came and got you for a few different other things, mm. but that, you know, you you had to drive. So it forced you once a week to get in a car and drive. You know what? It, the whole it actually made a lot of sense, and I think it was probably deliberately engineered by the woman because she was very, very clever, uh, and she knew, you know, she knew what she was doing. But you know, by the end of that, I was in a way better place. And then, despite all of the, everything that happened, I was really eager to go back to work. So you know, that's when I then started focusing on the physical side of stuff. You know, doing my own like physical rehabilitation because I mean, I'd broken various parts of myself, including part of my back. Uh, and destroyed a disc in my back and ruined a load of muscles and obviously my wrist that just was a basic break that healed up quite nicely you've always been like ever since i've known you, you've always been like a bag of nuts and bolts though oh i like, am I'm a medical miracle yeah i've got bits of metal inside me from all over the shop that i shouldn't be able to walk or, or move or talk but somehow i can i'm either really really lucky or really really unlucky because i keep getting involved in savage things but then always managing to somehow survive them the other week i think you were at work and i just sent you i told you you were a shit magnet Mm. and then an hour later you were like you know you said i'm a shit magnet (laughs) oh that fire on the way home yeah 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 yeah. i tried to leave work and work would not let me (laughs) yeah god every team has a shit magnet and i am that shit magnet yep i mean number of times i mean that guy a guy throw himself off a bridge in front of my car on the way home and I had to sort of pick him apart and do CPR on him uh, and again f- literally after that text message you sent me I thought it was really funny so I recorded it but I found out it was a stolen motorcycle that had been set on fire and I was just like pottering home and I saw the big plume of smoke and was like oh for god's sake like I want to go home but I was like I've got, got text Paul <laughs> <laughs> like just to prove his point like I can't I can't escape it but the important thing is I'm actually now back to doing I normally do, but the only reason I am back there is because of the therapy that I had. Like, never needed it before, was offered it, ripped their arm off for it, and then, yeah, you know, effectively, you know, don't get me wrong, none of the memories are gone, and they never will be, but I deal with it way better. I'm more comfortable. I mean, like, I'm quite comfortable today talking about it. Do you know, I'm surprised. I I thought I'd get really emotional. Yeah, I mean, you've, I've... Like, you've welled up a few times, mm. but, yeah, I'm surprised. Well, not surprised, like, uh, I wouldn't say I'm happy you didn't cry. <laughs> like, it's not like I really wanted you good to content, cry. Good content, good content. Just cry, for Christ's sake. We've we've called it Dudes Don't Cry, and we have to show that it's okay to cry. <laughs> 
Oh, don't get me wrong. I I have cried a hell of a lot about it, and you yeah. have seen me cry about it. But I think genuinely, it's got me to a fairly healthy place where I can talk about it. And I, I'm almost now kind of I'm almost like fascinated by the inside of my own head because mm. I don't I don't really understand how certain people, and by that I mean you know your emergency services, soldiers, whatever, how we can deal with trauma and how we can cope with it because it's not. It isn't healthy. There's no way it's healthy, which is why, you know, a lot of these sort of emergency services and frontline jobs have a shelf life because, you know, yeah. we deal with so much stuff that, you know, there's got to be a turning point or, or a snapping point, really. Uh, and I just think you have to maintain yourself and your mental health as well as you can to, like, delay the snap because I think, it, I think it'll come to everybody at some yeah. point. There's, there's a cumulative amount of crap that you can deal with. And at some point, I think everyone's going to go ping. You just, I think, have to do the best you can, accept whatever help that can be thrown at you to maintain yourself, to delay that ping, if that makes sense. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons I've left. And, you know, there are other reasons as well, but that's a big, big reason. I just got to the point where I just can't do it anymore. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the press about, you know, police and whatever, but I think, for me, and bringing up two young kids, I will, you know, they'll be brought up to, to be thankful of police, fire brigade, forces, paramedics, doctors, NHS, whoever it is, that are, you know, frontline people that clearly put, we say, oh, you know, put their lives at risk. They do. But yeah, also, yeah. they put their own well-being, mental health, and their family situation at risk. Because the stress and trauma they deal with, no matter what it is, on a day-to-day basis, has a massive toll on their personal life. It had a huge effect on, on mine. I mean, when, again, it's absolutely great now, but for a fairly reasonable length of time after the crash, when you're kind of in the midst of, like, the, the biggest part of the trauma, I didn't want to be spoken to. I didn't, weirdly, I didn't want to be touched. Like, I didn't want my missus to even touch me or talk to me or go anywhere near me, which is awful because she hadn't done anything wrong. And, you know, she's sort of almost going through, like, trauma by proxy because she wasn't there. So she's got these horrific images or ideas in her head, and I'm not talking to her. I didn't. I, I literally didn't want anyone to go anywhere near me. I mean, um, yeah, we had conversations. I got on really well with your missus, hmm. and, and she would ring me and just say, you know, can you talk to him? He's not talking to me. And I think that's really important. Like, we, you know, we're lucky. Like, we've got a relationship where shit goes down. I can ring you. You can ring me. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, we're very lucky that outside of our immediate family, mm. we've got someone that we can just talk to. We can pretty much say anything to each other, however dark, and we don't judge each other. The best therapy I've got is being able to talk to people because at the end of the day, your therapy, like you said, you did a certain amount of weeks of it. At some point, it doesn't, it never lasts forever. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, they are, at some point they go, well, we, you know, you've done, you've done the course. You're not fixed, but it's helped. Mm. You need to then yourself find ways to engage and talk to people in your own support network that help you continue that journey. I think, and again, we've always said it, even in episode one, and we'll probably can say it in every episode, you know, the biggest part of keeping your mental health and sanity intact is talking to other people. And for me, you know, there's a narrow group of people who kind of get it, but I talk to those people, and, and I'm now at a point where I can talk about it quite comfortably and quite a lot. But certainly earlier on, you know, if I didn't have you to talk to, so this is where, like, oh, I love you, Paul. He does. Genuinely, <laughs> if I didn't have you to talk to, I probably would have gone completely 
batshit because I was in a place where I couldn't talk to anybody else. Yeah. And, you know, you get it. You get it from all angles, yeah. you know. I'm not going to lie. I f- there was times where I found it quite, you know, because I, I was still at work at the time and I was going in and I had work, you know, the higher ups at work dragging me into the office, being like, you spoke to Kieran and I was kind of like, you, you had a welfare officer. Oh yeah, you became a second one. Definitely. I became a second yeah. one and, and I didn't have an issue with that at all. And I, if it happened again, I would do exactly the same thing again. You know, I didn't do it because it was work. I did it because you're my mate. But I, I'm not going to lie. There were times when, you know, I found it because I had my own shit going on as well at the time, you know, and then, and then we, you know, your stuff and, and it was draining. And I had days where I was like, I just can't like my, and then I, then I kind of shut down at home because I use my energy kind of talking to you or, yeah. de- or, you know, driving to you or, but I think it's just important if you're someone who doesn't have that, you feel like you've not got someone you can talk to that's outside of your family or, or even if you, you know, you don't have a, you know, you live on your own or, you know, you're a student or whatever it is and you don't feel like you've got someone, you know, we were in a fortunate position. We've got deep, you know, big families and people we can talk to and friend, you know, close friends. Even if you don't feel comfortable talking to one of your mates about the specifics and you don't feel like you can go into the details and, and open up, just go and have a chat. You've got to say something to someone, simple as that. Yeah, just talking yeah. about bullshit, just talking mm-hmm. about anything. Talk about the fact the fucking Super League football thing was a load of bollocks. Talk about Brexit, whatever you talk about. Not Brexit. Well, no, no. We're, done, we're done, we're done with that. <laughs> I want it back. I really want it back. I just want Brexit back so I can forget about COVID. Yeah. But just talk about anything, whatever it is. Just like tomorrow, I'm going to meet a mate and we'll just talk bullshit sat by the river and we're going to have a pint. I, it just helps. And, and even if you're not opening up and you don't feel ready to take that step and be like, tell someone how you're feeling inside, just have a chat about something else. And even if they don't know the details, they're going to be switched on enough to keep an eye on you and maybe intervene when you need it. Because everyone needs someone sometime to step in, don't they? Is that a so- is that like a line from a song? I think it is. I think, <laughs> I, think I just wrote it. <laughs> I just yeah. wrote it with my heart. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, oh, God, I'm going to get Copyrighted. Some. Yeah, copyrighted. I, uh, North Korea are going to be on the line. It's oh, like... Bono. <laughs> <laughs> Bono's going to have a go. But we knew this was coming. We knew we were going to be recording this episode and we knew we've kind of... We've spoken about all of this without recording it before. But yeah. thank you for taking the time to tell us the story. It's okay. And... Thank you for your service. No, no. <laughs> no, just thanks for opening up and being honest about it and, right. and being comfortable sharing it with listeners. Yeah. Thank you. No, th- thank you for listening. I mean, I know it's long and it's intense and it's quite a kind of dark story, but it genuinely helps me to talk about it anyway. And if it helps anyone listening to it, then all the better.